Hello, everyone. It's Saturday, and it's Chuck, and that means it's time for another Stuff You Should Know Select. We go all the way back to July to 2013 to discuss pollen. I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but if I'm timing it right, it should be sometime during pollen season, and that's why I picked it, because understanding the enemy is the first step toward defeating it. And so many people have bad problems with allergies and pollen, and uh, to understand how that really works in your body... Uh, it's kind of cool, and it really helps. So I hope you don't have any problems with pollen. hope you're doing okay. But learn all about how pollen works right here, right now. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that means it's time for Stuff You Should Know, the itchy, squeezy, skeezy, scratchy edition. Not skeezy. No. That's not. The I'll... itchy, scratchy, sneezy edition. That's what I meant to say. There you go. It's Here. funny how you can mix words together and come up with other words you didn't mean to say. <laughs> uh, Jerry's eyes are itching. Yeah. Well... We should say, we were just talking about the pollen count here in Atlanta. This is pretty much all we ever talk about ever. Sure. When the camera's not on or the mics aren't recording. That and Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh, you know how everyone comes to Atlanta and they're like, oh, every street's named Peachtree. Oh, let's yeah. go drink a Coke. Because <laughs> those are the only two things we've ever had. Exactly. All right, sorry. Yeah, that's fine. So you want to talk about pollen some more? Yeah, it's low right now in Atlanta. 39. That's moderate. Yeah, well, low for us. Right, but like according to the pollen scale, the scale that they use to count pollen and mm-hmm. then designate it somewhere along the pollen spectrum, 39 is considered moderate. Not even low, moderate. When it's really bad here in Georgia, mm-hmm. it gets to about 9,000. Yeah, those are the uh, few weeks that the... The streets run yellow with uh, when it rains with yellow water. Yeah. Looks like pee. Yep. Your car's totally covered in it. You're covered in it. It's just everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. But now we're about to tell everybody. We're basically going to turn everybody into a palynologist. Yeah. To be, an extent. You should be a big fan after this. An amateur palynologist. I think uh, about a third of all the plants and vegetables and uh, fruits and vegetables we eat are, you know, here thanks to pollen. So if you like eating food... Yeah. It doesn't come in a box. Thank you, pollen. Is it just a third that pollinate or a third that are just angiosperms or gymnosperms? A third that, that uh, pollinate. Wow. Yeah. What's up with the other two thirds? I don't know. Well, you know, bananas, they're clones of one another. There you go. There's, there's like, there's, there's <laughs> the one. There's like, a, a, I think, a thousand varieties of bananas. And thanks, by the way, to Damn Interesting for this information. Uh-huh. But there's like a thousand varieties or species of bananas, but each one, like if you eat like a type of just one of those species of bananas, you're eating an exact clone of every other banana in that species because many thousands of years ago, humans just stumbled upon the banana, which Uh is the, the, a hybrid of two basically inedible fruits that came together to form the delicious banana, but made them sterile. All banana plants are sterile. And the only way that they're allowed to propagate is by human hand. They're delicious. I did a Don't Be Dumb about that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, you just did it again. Yeah. <laughs> you can check out Don't Be Dumbs on our website, <laughs> stuffyoushouldknow.com. Wow. All right. Anyway, pollen. Yes. It's been around for a while. Um, I know in our bee podcast, we talked about how bees and, and pollen kind of emerged side by side 100 million years ago. Some say co-evolved. Right. But... 
pollen actually goes further back than that. Yeah. In this article, it says about 375 million years ago is when the plants started getting clever and spreading their seed, literally, using pollen. That's different right. techniques. And I think that... Um, the gymnosperms were first. You think so? I believe so. Uh, yeah, and uh, the author of the article here points out that the reason why it evolved was so plants didn't have to be dumb and rely on water to carry their junk to fertilize other junk. Right. You know, they're like, how about wind? Or how about that bat? Or how yeah. about that beetle? Yeah. Or how about that bird pooping it out? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and I, like I said, I think... Uh, Pollen grains or plants spread their seed, literally. Plant pollen is what amounts to plant sperm. Yeah, it's like I always go to the kid science pages to, okay. to research first right. off. I mean, they're good. They're they're colorful. Great. Uh, yeah, if we want to pollination, very simply, you know, people reproduce, animals reproduce. They need male and female parts. Plants and flowers are no different. Right. They need male parts to connect with the female parts mm-hmm. uh, to make an egg, and in this case. Pollination is how it's done. Right. So it's you, basically how that sperm, the pollen, reaches that egg. Which is the ovule. Yeah. Right. And once they get together, magic happens. That's right. But let's talk about the way it looks, first of all. Yeah, there's like a, cool. there's a lot of different looks to pollen depending on the plant. Yeah. Um, and all of these variations, well, it can be like a, a, a cone, literally sure. a pine cone. Yeah. And look at, you know, just look up microscope pollen on Google Images and you'll see all sorts of weird, colorful shapes and sizes. Yeah, some look like blowfish. Yeah. Others look like Sputnik. <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't see the Sputnik. Some have uh, ribbed edges. Yeah. For And all of these adaptations are um, or mutations, I guess they became adaptations, allow that pollen to kind of better ensure that it's going to be carried to where it needs to go. Yeah, it's, it has a purpose. It's not just like, hey, this one would look neat if it looked like a starfish. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, it serves Let's its mix purpose it up. in the end. Some have wings, kind of, what amount to basically wings because uh, they're carried on the wind. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like dandelion pollen, that's carried on the wind. Uh, true. Well, dandelions uh, self-pollinate, too. We'll get to that, though. Yeah. They're slippery little guys. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're uh, also high in phytonutrients as well. Oh, yeah? Dandelion greens are. Oh, the, the stems? Uh, no, the leaves. Oh, the little leaves yeah. under the yellow part? So here, here's a rule of thumb. There's a New York Times article that came out uh, very recently about phytonutrients and how we basically bred them out of our food. Uh-huh. And um, the rule of thumb is the, the, uh, bit, the bitterer or more bitter the plant, the higher it is in phytonutrients. Phytonutrients have kind of a bitter astringent taste. Yeah. And we tend to not really like that, so we stopped eating those things over time and replaced them with sweet things that aren't necessarily good for us, like, you know, potatoes and other starches. Yeah, well, bitter things can also kill you. That's probably one reason why. <laughs> Maybe so. You know. That's that's a pretty good point. But bitter stuff that you know won't kill you. Yeah, sure. dandelion leaves, go out and eat some right now. Yeah. But back in the day, I bet people were like, that tastes bad, and it killed tuk-tuk, so let's just not eat it. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, so should we talk about <laughs> pollination? Talked a little bit about pollen. Yeah. Now we need to talk about how plants make little baby plants. Right. And it's it's pretty simple. Like I said, the the male part. And have you? Uh, it really helps to follow along if you go to a handy dandy little visual aid. Mm-hmm. I found because they really break down the male parts and the female parts. The female 
is the has the pistol, and that's P I S T I L. Mm-hmm. And within that, you have the ovary, which are you know sits down low in the plant, and the style, which is a long, uh, thin uh, appendage, <laughs> I guess, that contains pollen tubes. Right. And then at the top, you have your stigma, which is going to catch the pollen. Yeah, and that's the female part, right? That's the lady. Okay. Don't be confused because it is phallic in nature. Yeah, true. But it's still the female part. Uh, and the male has the filament, which is a long stem, and then the anther at the top, mm-hmm. which holds all the pollen. Yeah. And that's pretty much the long and short of the parts. And is that just angiosperms that you're describing, or is that all all pollinating plants? I think these are just the angiosperms. Well, we should say quite explicitly that there's basically two ways that plants can pollinate. There's gymnosperms and angiosperms. And the big difference between the two is that gymnosperms, literally that means naked seed, which, yeah. by the way, gymnasium is means place to be naked. Gymnasium in German. Did you know that? Yeah. So gymnosperms, naked seed, there's nothing protecting the seed once it's, once it's produced. Yeah. And a seed is just a, germ, uh, a fertilized ovum or ovule, right? Yeah. Um, angiosperms produce something to protect that seed, whether it's a shell like a nut or fruit like an apple with the seeds inside. Right. Because an apple is just a, uh, an enlarged ovule. Ovary. <laughs> and the seeds are the fertilized ov- ovules. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can also pollinate, uh, cross-pollinate or self-pollinate. Right. Those are the other two differences. So you were saying what, what oh, dandelions self-pollinate? Well, they can do both, um, but they do have a little, a cool little feature. They basically grow up, you know, this is when they're still the little yellow flower. Mm-hmm. They have these little florets that grow up. And if you look, well, you probably can't see. If you look really, really close, though, they these little florets that grow up. And as it grows, it carries uh, the pollen on its little stem and then eventually gets to a point where it doesn't start grow, growing up anymore. And it splits and then starts curling back on itself mm-hmm. to, uh, you know. No way. <laughs> it picks up its own pollen from its own style. Huh. And well, it's self-pollination. It's not gross or like perverted. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, plants out there, though, that have mechanisms to prevent them from self-pollinating. I yeah, guess it can't be good or bad. That's what I couldn't figure out. Well, the plants somewhere along the way figured out like, hey, the, the wider the gene pool, the yeah. better off we are because the more room there is for adaptation, mutations, and then adaptations, right? Yeah, but in here the author said ideally it cross-pollinates, but I don't think that's the case always. Well, It's I, not I, ideal. It's just some do and some don't, right? I mean, if you look at it like from just a, an animalistic or an organism viewpoint, right? Like right. with us. If you just get a bunch of Mennonites together and they just <laughs> reproduce with one another, yeah. there's going to be defects that just are propagated throughout this this little gene pool. Yeah. But if the Mennonites spread out into the, you know, larger country as a whole, those defects are going to, you know, I guess be kind of watered down by the, the size of the gene pool. I think it's the same thing with self-pollinating and cross-pollinating. Yeah, because it's interesting because things like peanuts are self-pollinators, mm-hmm. and that's why they thrive. But corn has a mechanism to not allow itself to self-pollinate. Right. Like they're, I think the, the sperm is ready at a different time than the ovule is ready to accept it. Right. So well, it's, it's a timing thing. The thing is, peanuts would probably be able to talk if they didn't self-pollinate. And they'd sound like Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so there's a lot of mechanisms that plants have to prevent themselves from self-pollinating. Um, some or some might have uh, either just male plants and just female plants. Yeah. Um, some may be uh, where the the male part, if a plant has both male and female uh, flowers, for That's example, dioecious. Uh, yes. Yeah. They um they the the male flower might come out before the female flower on the same plant. Right. So that they're not the timings off a little bit. Right. Um, and then there's some that are just like they'll they'll signal a biochemical marker if pollen from the same plant gets near the uh, ovule, it'll just basically turn barren. Right. So it just is incapable of fertilizing itself. Or like corn where the timing's thrown off. Yeah. So they rely on cross-pollination. Right. Which is pretty cool. So let's let's get explicit again here. Gymnosperms. <laughs> yes. Naked seed. How does this happen? Like we'll use the example of a, a pine, a loblolly pine. Yeah, a pine it's, cone. It's fun to say, um, but that's a conifer. Conifers are ancient. I believe they were the first uh, pollinating plant. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. Nice. So let's talk about it. Well, the pine cones—they're they're little male pine cones, little female pine cones. You mm-hmm. might not realize that. But yeah. You've got quite a show going on in your backyard at certain times of the year. Right. Um, and basically, if once you get the two together, you get yeah. a male pine cone and a female pine cone together. Uh-huh. The uh, male pine cone fertilizes. Well, the pollen comes in contact with an ovule. Yeah. And the pollen starts to go to town. It absorbs a bunch of water. Yeah. Well, the female pine cone's a little sticky, too. That helps, by the way. It does. Helps collect the pollen. Right. Um, so the female or the ma- the pollen, the male the male part of the pine cone mm-hmm. germinates and uh, it starts growing what's called a pollen tube. Yeah, which basically allows this pollen to directly fertilize the ovule. Yeah. Once that happens, the ovule basically becomes a seed, mm-hmm. and the seed is released from the pine cone. They go everywhere. Yeah. And then they're eaten by birds and pooped out elsewhere, or carried along in the by, they're trampled by a rhinoceros. Sure. Who knows what just got loose from the zoo. Yeah. But then that seed is carried along. But it's not protected by anything. It's just a seed. Right. And hence a naked seed, hence gymnosperms. Right. So angiosperms, they have kind of like a a similar process, whereas there's a pollen tube that's grown and the the male pollen has to come in contact with the female pollen and all that. Yeah. And we're talking about flowers in most cases here. With angiosperms, they're the only ones that flower and produce fruit. Yeah. So when you think about your garden with the honeybee and all, that's angiosperm. Right. So that's a non-naked seed. And that's the that's where the fruit comes in or the shell comes in. There's angiosperms have developed a, a mechanism to protect the seed yeah. to better ensure its survival. And if you think about it, to entice uh, the things that transport these seeds to go ahead and do their thing. Yeah, there's like every flower has some sort of cool shape or scent or color yeah. or something that matches with some little insect or bird or bat that's going to be enticed like the bumblebee and the foxglove they go mm-hmm. hand in hand because mm-hmm. it fits up there just perfect yeah and it has a little uh, colorful landing strip on the bottom pedal to guide the bumblebee in yeah and it's just like nature's it's just like harmonious I right guess. there's that one orchid that uh 
I believe Darwin predicted the existence of a type of hummingbird that had a very long curled beak oh, right. that had co-evolved with it, and he was absolutely correct. So cool. Remember, it's in that movie Adaptation. Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, and then... Uh, you can uh, learn a lot from that movie. Yeah, it's if a you great... you pay attention. Yeah, anything yeah. that... Uh, what's his name? Charlie Kaufman writes? Yeah. Well-researched. Agreed. Um, the fruit is another thing, too. Animals love to eat fruit. Yeah. The fruit is basically, once a fruit piece of fruit drops to the ground, that means those seeds are ready to go. They're ready to become seedlings. But first, they need a fox to eat the apple, carry it in its stomach. Right. Over you know, several meters or miles or whatever, and then poop it out, and then you have seeds that are basically just planted. That's amazing. They take purchase, and a new (laughs) tree begins. Where a seed, her insides were a rocky place where a seed could find no purchase. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So pollen grains um, are actually created, I guess we should step back a second and talk about uh, meiosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the cells are dividing and growing, Eventually, you get a little pollen. Uh, it looks like a little dust speck to our eyeball, but it contains the sperm. It's not actually the sperm. Right. It contains the sperm therein. Yeah. And uh, the pollen uh, is in pollen sacs at the end of the stamen, which we talked about, and that little two-lobed ant uh, – I almost said antler – anther. Yeah. And it's then like Gunther. eventually, it'll find its way to the stigma and travel down to the ovary – and, and in the case of angiosperms, uh, there are two sperm that are used. I don't think we said in the case of gymnosperms, right. it's only one of the sperm is used, right? Yeah, in a, in a pollen sac, there's two sperm, but you just need one for the gymnosperm. For the angiosperm, you need two. Yeah, because one is actually fertilizing the egg, and the other is developing into endosperm together alongside in what will eventually be the seed. And if you think that sounds gross, like the, the gymnosperm, I'm sorry, the endosperm is... Like a protein, basically, right? To keep it all alive. Yeah, that keeps the seedling happy and yeah. healthy. So when you're eating corn, you're actually eating the endosperm. Each corn kernel is actually, you know, it's like that starchy endosperm, right? Delicious. Which, which the seed loves to eat itself. And that's true. Um, so we talked about bees. We talked about birds, foxes. Mentioned poop a couple of times. Fox gloves. Yeah, and you were saying that like. Uh, Basically, every every flowering plant, especially, has some sort of mechanism to attract at least one kind of um, bug or animal that's been proven to help pollinate, transport this pollen. Yeah, and some of them, I mean, for the most part, we enjoy them. Like you like the scent of, you know, a good flower, right? Oh yeah, sure. But you might not like the devil's tongue. Yeah, which is a Sumatran plant that apparently reeks so badly it smells like a decomposing flesh basically yeah basically did you see this thing i've seen it before yeah it's really remarkable yeah it's like two feet tall and it's it like it it basically um flowers or blooms like once every like 10 years or 20 years or really. something like that right uh i'm not sure if it's the same one i'm thinking of then but yes. it's stinky right and the reason why it's stinky is because it pollinates with the help of a type of carrion beetle that's attracted to Decomposing flesh. Yeah. So the plant attracts this beetle that likes to eat decomposing flesh by putting out the smell of decomposing flesh. That's so gross. Yeah, but it's pretty spectacular. It is. You know? Yeah, and the philodendron uh, is something you might have in your house. It actually does the same thing, but it doesn't stink always. Um, There's actually a chemical reaction that takes place and heats it up 
to emit this odor that the beetle is attracted to, right. which sounds pretty gross too. Yeah, but uh, it all works. And I would Google that um, the uh, Sumatran devil's tongue. It's pretty cool looking. Like the flower itself is two feet. It's not like oh, what a long stem. Right. It's just this huge flower. It's amazing. Right. And then you're also saying like, uh, was it foxglove that provided a uh, a landing strip for bumblebees? Yeah. So flowers in general typically have certain types of um, like their color will be based on the kind of creature that um, that that helps pollinate it, whether right. it's diurnal, meaning it, it's awake during the day, or nocturnal, meaning it's awake at night. Right. Right. I guess that's in case of like bats and stuff like that. Yeah. And then our old friend nectar is a big lure, and basically nectar is around. Right, just because it tastes delicious and is enticing. From what to I the understand, yeah, it's basically like a little enticement, like you said, for like a bee or something or a bird. Yeah, come get it, <laughs> because it's placed by the stamen. That's right, or the way that the the anthers are situated, just the way they're placed in the flower. Mm-hmm. If it gave it an advantage to bump up against that bee, then it's going to be successful in the long run yep. and live out as a species. That is nice stuff. That is pretty good. So, Chuck, we've reached a point where, um, I mean, ever since we started selectively breeding plants, domesticating crops. Like, hey, that's pretty. Right. Or, hey, I like this banana. Yeah. Um, or that's hardy and it grows in my awful hot area that I live in. Exactly. Many reasons to do so. Right. Um, you know, we, we wanted to keep plants... We wanted to keep the, the bad stuff out, keep the good ones we wanted in. Yeah. But it never became more crucial um, until we started genetically modifying crops. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, not only are the corporations saying like, hey, man, you can't cross-pollinate with our stuff or else you, that's patent infringement. Yeah. And a nearby farmer says, I'm not using your seeds. It's the bees. You can't blame me. Right. And the farmers who don't want GMO stuff in their crops... Say, hey, man, you need to keep your crops over there yeah. because I don't want your GMO crud in here. I have an organic farm. Exactly. And your, you're your junk is me. blowing by the wind. It's a touchy subject. We should do that as a oh, whole, yeah. the I, GMOs. I agree. The idea of like patenting genes in general and let yeah. alone like crops, is it's really interesting. Um, but there's been some pretty clever, simple uh, ways of getting around this problem. That's posed by pollination of GMO crops with non-GMO crops. Yeah, well, distance is obviously one thing. <laughs> yeah, like, it's pretty simple. Don't put my farm near your farm. Yeah. But they have to do all kinds of studies to see how the wind reacts and how like, how far does that bee fly. Yeah, and they found in, uh, in certain parts of Africa, bees will go about four miles, three kilometers. Yeah. That's their range for food. That's, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, just using that kind of thinking thought process, though, like, okay, well, this, you know, there's, this guy's growing this over here, so I can't grow this here. Right. That will prevent that kind of pollination, though. Yeah. Another thing they can do is uh, sort of like with the corn, they can time their crop rotation to time out so where they're flowering at different times and not interfering with one another. Right. But um, it's a touchy subject. Like, from what I understand, there's a lot, a lot more going on than, you know— is preferred by, like, the organic farmers of the world. Sure. And in the GMOs, they can then say that you're infringing Yeah, just because they cross-pollinated to their crop. Right. Even though you didn't buy their seeds right. or, or even want their seeds. Interesting. If a bee carries their, it, their seeds, 
their crops pollen over to your crops, and the, it, you start to develop plants that have that yeah, GMO traits. characteristics uh-huh. that's patented. According to the corporations, you're infringing on their patent. It's very tricky ground there, isn't it? I don't think it's tricky ground. If you ask me, you should not be allowed to have a patent on any living organism. Oh, well, yeah. You know what I mean, though. That's my opinion. It gets tricky uh, in courts and in oh, studies yeah. and sure. in corporations and stuff The like courts, that. though, tend to side on the corporation's side, typically. Yeah. Let's do that one, though, soon. GMOs? Yeah. All right. Um, so that's it for pollen. If you're interested in how pollen causes allergies, then you should listen to our How Allergies Work episode. That was pretty good. Yeah, I was going to recommend that. Nice work. Um, thanks, man. So uh, if you want to learn more about pollen in the meantime, you can type that word in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time, of course, for a message break. Stuff you should How about some listener mail? Yeah. Uh, we have a correction. It's been blowing up lately. Oh, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what's crazy is that's the second time I've done that in a podcast. On that same uh, yeah same thing? I don't remember what the other podcast was, but I've mentioned it before, and we've gotten tons of corrections about it. And All I right. didn't learn my lesson. Well, this guy was really nice about it, so I'm going to read his. Okay. And it's an important correction because anytime you're talking about drugs. Right. <laughs> So to recap, in the PTSD podcast, mm-hmm. we got the two drugs, uh, beta blocker called uh, propanolol, which helps with PTSD, mm-hmm. infused with propofol, which is what killed Michael Jackson. Right. And so this is from Chris. Uh, he's a big fan. He's listened to every episode uh, on his commute in Southern California, which we know stinks. <laughs> so uh, he said what we just said about the getting the drugs confused. He said, I can see how you guys can mix it up because the names are very similar. But they're significantly different, obviously. Uh, propanol is relatively mild and um, commonly prescribed and very little potential for overdose, while propofol is a very powerful drug with extremely high potential for overdose and rarely administrated outside of strictly monitored medical settings. Uh, it is actually a hypnotic agent that must be administered intravenously because we talked about Michael Jackson's drip. Right. Uh, and is often used in conjunction with general anesthetics like uh, most general anesthetics, its steep dose response curve significantly increases the risk of do- overdose, uh, where the effective dose is only slightly below a lethal dose. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it really is. I mean, like when you're when you're on that, like you're right along the border. Yeah. Well, he says Michael Jackson's case is extremely rare, so he was essentially exposing himself to risks similar to those associated with general anesthetics used during surgery with a high per- uh, potential for overdose and death on a daily basis for relatively trivial purposes, uh, which were, in this case, his insomnia. Yeah, but uh, from what I understand, he had, like, years-long insomnia. Like, this guy was not sleeping at all. Like, well, they, yeah. would, they, would in, they would give him everything first, and then they'd try that last resort. And, like, sometimes it still wouldn't work. Really? Yeah, he was really in bad shape at the end. Well, he probably had a resistance to certain things like that. Uh, So Chris goes on to say, I'm not certain about the exact amount of risk posed by propofol administration, but I believe the risk of death is something on the order of tenths of a percent, meaning he would have died, according to the statistical model, within a couple of years of daily use. 
like pretty right. much guaranteed. Right. Uh, frankly, he would have been better off using heroin that whole time in spite of his ironically strict yet poorly informed anti-drug stance. <laughs> so that's from Chris. Thanks, Chris. That was a genuinely awesome email. Yeah, it was good. Um, and I'm sorry, everybody, for getting so wrong. Well, I mean, the names are just confusing. Yeah, but I mean, one's like a blood pressure medicine. The other one's like pretty much a general anesthetic. I know, but what gets me is that half of the emails were like, well, yeah, they just sound alike, so you goofed it. And half of them were like, those drugs couldn't be any more different. Right. Like you really thought that, you know, it's just, it's like a verbal typo. Right. You Thank know? you, Chuck. Yeah. Thanks for letting me off. So anyway. Uh, if you have a correction for us, we really do like to get those. We like to know what we're talking about. Sometimes sure. we, get, we get things wrong. Sometimes I get things wrong. But hey. we do want to be corrected. It happens. In the nicest way possible. Because yeah. that's usually who gets their uh, letter read, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to Stuff Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And you can join us at our home on the web, the greatest website in the history of humanity, Stuff You Should Know, all one word, dot com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 